1: I'm Visha's
0: wife, and remember, when you name a dog Janet or Timothy, you are dragging humanity down just a little bit.
2: Robin Hatch is a neoclassical Canadian composer and multi-instrumentalist currently based in Burlington, Ontario. Emerging as a dynamic artistic force in Toronto over the past decade, Hatch has played in bands like Sheezer, not to mention a special events and wedding band with me when I lived in Guelph. On her own, Hatch has explored transcribed improvisation while also applying traditional classical structures to modern melodic ideas over the course of four albums. Her latest release is 2021's Tonto, which was recorded over four days in February 2021 on the famed Tonto synthesizer at the National Music Center in Calgary, Alberta. With guest spots by the likes of Eric Slick from Dr. Dog, Leland Witte from Bad Bad Not Good, doom metal violinist Laura Bates of Valur, drummer Lowell Witte, Nick Thorburn from Islands, and saxophonist Joseph Shabison, Tonto is a towering achievement and prompted Hatch and I to have a good chat about pandemic life in Ontario and why she hit the road to meet with famed Stevie Wonder producer and electronic music pioneer Robert Margalef, early Moog synthesizers and George Harrison and Annette Peacock, the Blink 155 podcast and its hosts, Josiah Hughes and Sam Sutherland, Rick Rubin, Def Leppard and Weezer. Jim Guthrie and the Three Gut Records Party at the Transac, How the Beatles Couldn't Read Music, Giggling at Grimes, Steve Albini's Twitter and Provoking People on Socials, Kanye West and Bob Dylan, Almost Playing with Dweezil Zappa, Touring with Fucked Up, Tonto Appearing on Vinyl, Other Future Plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you, who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com/slash creative control with additional support from Blackbird Music, a wonderful record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, and friendly staff who will happily help you source special orders for hard-to-find titles. All of which you can learn more about at their website, blackbird.ca, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, the bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is the 659th episode of Creative Control featuring the brilliant and charming Robin Hatch with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Robin. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for asking. Uh, where in the world are you?
1: I am in uh, Burlington, Ontario, right now.
2: Burlington, Ontario. That's not where I think of Robin Hatch being. You know, hanging out in Burlington. What? What brings you to Burlington?
1: Um, I I live at my parents, so uh, that's oh. where they live.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you were kind of a Toronto person. Sorry. Is that? Oh no, it's I okay.
1: Know? I mean, it's somewhat because of the pandemic, but right. No, I, I know. I seem like a very urban kind of. Uh, <laughs> I should
3: be downtown somewhere.
1: <laughs> have you
2: ever lived? Have you ever lived in Toronto?
1: Yeah, yeah, I lived there for ten years.
2: Right. Okay. So it's not it's not uh, completely outlandish of me to it. I think I knew you as anytime we've connected for interviews or whatever. For the most part, I think you've been in Toronto. I'm talking like pre. You being like a solo person, person. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that was true. Like when I, when we did Long Winter, I guess it was two years ago now, I would have been in Burlington, but yeah, it's funny because earlier today I thought of it as just one year ago (laughs) and had to do a reality check.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, how are things going in, in Burlington in a general sense? I know from what I've been reading and I try not to read anything anymore, like in terms of, I read books. Uh, and magazines, but I try not to read, uh, the news as much. But from what I can tell, as we're speaking, Ontario is in a, uh, I don't think free fall is the right word because it's actually everything's going up. Uh, the, the case numbers are like 10,000 people a day all of a sudden. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. The numbers are pretty crazy. I, uh, sometimes I push the button and Google Ontario COVID cases and it'll say something I noticed two days ago is, the main variable on the graph is tests, like amount of tests taken. So that number looks like it's skyrocketed, and then way below that is the amount of cases, which it is also high. But uh, the good news is, I guess the death rates aren't very high. Yeah, um, that's that's what so I'm you hearing. Keep that in mind. Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> that's right. Because here's the thing, Robin. I uh, during the pandemic, yes. Yeah, so you and I, I'm trying to think here. I feel like we did one thing for long winter. I mean. January, no, February twenty January January 2020, I had already moved to Edmonton from Ontario. uh, And so I didn't, I decided, but there was talk of me still doing that long winter talk show. So you were my um, panel guest uh, remotely. I did it remotely and I was on a computer, right? Is that what happened?
1: Yeah, and you had a a cool theme song with your kids.
2: That's right. And my daughter uh, more or less fell in love with you. I, I we oh, yeah. we she just became very smitten with you and your music and and just something about you she really liked and who doesn't like you first of all let me just say that it's not just my daughter but anyway yeah she became smitten. I mentioned that I was talking to you and I tried to give her some they don't have good memories you know children sometimes mm-hmm. so I gave her some context I said yeah you know she was on the talk show she's like she played the piano I'm like yes oh. Oh. that's right so she remembers that part and we were listening to the uh, the the new record in the in the house and she. I mean, what they think is it sounds like video game music. But anyway, we can talk about that's something. Yeah, we'll talk about that maybe later. But anyway, okay. So yeah, January 2020, I beamed in and you were my like interview guest. And I think that went okay as I recall. But then I decided to fly home in uh, February. Uh, Which was the last time I was in Ontario February 2020 was to basically Come and see my parents and my friends And do Long Winter And then you were the musical uh, director Right for my show Is that what happened?
1: Oh yeah, I came back the next month and was the like Paul Schaefer to your Letterman.
2: That's correct. That's exact. That was the, you picked the right two people. First of all, thank yeah,
1: you. Yeah, oh, I can't think of any. <laughs> <quest alone. laughs>
2: yeah, no, no, no. Don't talk about that other show. I don't like that show. But yeah, okay, The, okay, okay. the Paul and uh, or Max Weinberg and Conan O'Brien. Maybe I don't know. But anyway, yeah,
1: that's pretty cool.
2: That one was pretty good. But anyway, you uh, you were yeah you were my you did live music and so that's the last time. And we were in the same room for that, right? I was there. You were there. We were both there, right? Is that what happened? Yeah, we were both there. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, of course, the, the next month, March 2020, there was a lockdown and, or whatever. Like, yeah, there was a lockdown. Mm-hmm. The pandemic was really in full force. And then I, you know, I, uh, you're, you and I kind of, uh, keep, uh, t- t- whatever. I don't know what the word is, but we're social media friends. So I would see you traveling. Uh, I thought, it seemed to me, unless yeah. you d- did some sort of, Bizarre uh, made up thing on Photoshop, but it seemed to me that during everyone had <laughs> a really cool bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you're like, hey, yeah. I'm in Arizona, I'm in the, I'm at the Grand Canyon or whatever. I feel like those are no,
1: I, I did go there. You did.
2: So what? Okay, so this is what I don't get. Uh, I felt like the world was locked down. You seemed to be traveling. I assume for work, but also not. Like, what were you doing in all that time when everyone else was like, don't leave your house? You were like circumnavigating at least North America. Is that right?
1: Uh, so I. As soon as I got the vaccine... Well, I live with my folks in one of them's autoimmune oh. condition, So, it's been a very intense uh, year. So, I, as soon as they got the vaccines, it was like a lift off, weight off my shoulders. And then, um, as soon as I got the vax, I needed to get my album mastered. So, I went down to get it mastered by Robert Margalef, who um, was one of the two businessmen behind the Tonto synth Um oh. And he he produced um, Freedom of Choice and... um, Oh, by Devo. Yeah, and one of the early Oingo Boingo records. Oh, um, okay. As well as those two Stevie... like Or no, the three Stevie Wonder, intervisions, Talking Book, and Music of My Mind. Holy Lord.
2: Okay, wow. There you go.
1: Yeah, so so the main reason was to get um, the album mastered. And then, I guess, I decided to book an extra week and drove through... um, the border of Arizona and Utah, and then back down through the Grand Canyon. Um,
2: I see. Okay. So it was a business trip, and it wasn't, you weren't whatever. You weren't just like, I, I feel like now's the time to take a little trip. You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where is Robert based, though? Uh, in LA. In LA. Okay. So you went down there, and then you. So, and what was that like just traveling? Am I correct, though, timeline wise? So you were Vax, so that must have been after. Uh, When did we start getting vaccinated? April? June? When was that? I don't remember. Yeah, Yeah. I had my
1: second vax in June.
2: Right. Like the the first week of June. 2021? 2021. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. You're right. Everything's blurred together. We did not have any vaccinations for all of 2020, right? We didn't start Mm -hmm. getting stuff. Okay. So all of this travel I'm thinking of was after the vaccines. Is that fair? Yeah, I'd say
1: the, the trip to Calgary... To do the oh, yeah. uh, residency at, at the NMC, that was more intense in terms of uh, stress about COVID, right? Because that that was still when we it was kind of don't touch your face vibes uh, in the press, <laughs> and there were no vaccines yet well, in Canada. Was it
2: hard for you not to touch your face?
1: A bit, but it's funny how th- just hearing the government demands this made it a bit <laughs> easier. I guess right. my skin got better. I think.
2: Did you find that you? Because we learned a lot about ourselves. In terms of, we learned that men don't wash their hands. That's the one thing I was like, what the hell? (laughs) I still, I'll tell you, so it's not even the pandemic anymore. I still have decided to wear the rubber gloves in the grocery store because I'm like, the one thing I really took away from this is that everyone's pretty goddamn gross and they're not washing their hands. So if they're rifling through the, whatever I'm rifling through, the granola bars or the uh, quinoa or whatever the hell it is. You know, who mm. knows what's on their hands. So then I said... Yeah, you
1: don't want their poop particles. Yes, exactly. Granola exactly. box. Disgusting.
2: Yeah. So I still am doing that. And when I go to the... I have to go to the Costco sometimes to feed the family here. So I go there and it's like crazy a number of people. And I just decide, you know what? Why don't I just keep wearing the things? And you get the odd look still. But anyway, I that's what I learned. But did you learn... They were trying to teach us that we maybe touched our faces too much. You're right. And there are all sorts of strange things. Like It already feels quaint. The mm-hmm. early days, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah like I was. Um, do you watch Better Call Saul?
2: Of course, yes. I love that show. Yes.
1: You know yes. when Chuck would wear the kind of tin foil, blazer yes. and, and freak out, kind of going to the grocery store. That was definitely my frame of mind for probably the first three months of the pandemic.
2: Oh, okay. You were you were really uh, affected by so oh, much I was so, so that so you... stressed. Yeah, I didn't. I couldn't tell. See, you seem very chill. And cavalier in some ways that's why i wasn't sure i i just assumed again the timelines are all blurring so i'm like and to be honest i was like if robin's traveling around maybe it's fine like i actually had that brief thought i didn't i wasn't being judgy i was like well maybe it's fine i don't know what's going on but you were one of the people where i was i'd see you doing stuff and be like she's in calgary during the pandemic like you know i'm here we didn't reach out to one another to be like hey you're around i feel like i did so sort to of say like yeah, holy we shit you're actually did we connect i can't remember
1: yeah it I mean, I got the email in January that because uh, Alberta had just gone into some other phase of lockdown and um, mm-hmm. I had gotten the residency before the pandemic. It was supposed to be three weeks. Um, they said we can do it now, it'll be um, six days. So yeah. I was just kind of desperate to get out of the house at that point. So, but something that's interesting is uh, I'm, I feel like I'm lucky to have been friends with Americans throughout the pandemic because their attitude towards COVID and masks and everything, like I I disagree with some of the fundamentals, but the they are a bit more ideologically free and as a result didn't seem to worry about it as much when I was there. Versus in Canada, it's it's almost still more stressful now, even when there were no lockdowns than it than it was in the States.
2: That's fat I've never heard In the last few years, particularly ten years, I've never heard anyone describe America as being a little more ideologically free. They seem very. That's the whole thing. You think so? Like I feel like they're very tied tied to various ideologies. That's why they're so fractured. But you think they're? Maybe I'm misunderstanding what you mean. You just feel like
1: maybe they're ideologically freedom uh, based. So.
2: Oh, I see what you're saying. They're they're free of right. I see.
1: Which, unfortunately, leads itself to more extreme viewpoints. but And things like... I feel like the nursing home thing here, just reading about that for me was enough to make me want to never leave the house. Mm. I felt so bad. And I I don't think it's the same in the States. Um, Right,
2: right. I see. Okay. But they're, in
1: general, just a bit less worried, I think, about scary plague virus.
2: When you say Americans are less worried are you are you saying that in juxtaposition to me specifically do you feel like I'm too worried? I feel like I am a little too worried but I also I don't think people are taking it that I sorry I live in Alberta you have to understand that right uh, right and, and people don't take it that seriously and then they get as you may have heard uh, at the peak before like this government here would just lift all they could they they lifted almost everything and then our rates went sky high. we were like Worst, we were the worst in North America. This province was the worst of any place, any state in America, any province. Canada. We had the worst case counts. So, like, I, I think my perspective is different because I'm in a place Mm -hmm. that there's cognitive dissonance. So when you live in, like, when I was talking to my uh, sister and her partner, they're in Nova Scotia. So they have a totally different environment compared to where we live. So, like. I mean, even when I was talking to them, like, yeah, it's minus 36 degrees Celsius here. And they're like, Oh, it's plus one. I'm like, okay. (laughs) That's (laughs) as you know, Robin, that's quite different. So anyway, yeah, I think depending on where you live, maybe like, as I said, as I started this, like Ontario is not doing well as we're speaking, right? It's doing very like five weeks ago. I feel like Ontario was like 200 cases a day. And then mm-hmm. this variant came about, and now you're at ten thousand cases a day. Are things locked down? Like, are, are 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 you not allowed to do certain things that you could like five, six weeks ago?
1: Yeah, they reduced venue capacity. I think around the second week of December. Oh, okay. Doug Ford kind of got his mind right, and that's when everything kind of got Christmas and New Year's events got canceled. But uh, mm. I wonder if it has to do with the land border reopening as well for for Ontario, and that's why it's not as high in.
2: Um, oh, they left the border thing open, even though there's the rise and everything. I thought they would have shut that. Yeah, door. yeah. Oh, okay.
1: They uh, so that may have something to do with it.
2: You know, this this is what I don't like about it, Robin. There's no consistency. I don't like it. I'm a very cons- I try to be consistent. So there's no one's acting in a way that like it's like the everything's precedented now, right? Like it's not unprecedented anymore. What's happening when the cases go up? You would, don't you think we should? I know you don't. You think we worry too much, but don't you think we should just go back? No, I don't think. That. Okay, don't you think we should lock down again when the cases go up to ten thousand a day, like the way we did when it started? Doesn't that make sense?
1: Yeah, and it it's like a it's like we're all in a cult, and the leader of the cults are government leaders, yeah. and they're doing kind of intermittent reinforcements, making us all freak out. Yeah, it um, it is
2: anyway. It's very bizarre. So when were you in? Calgary, because I thought it was during, based on what you're saying, I thought it was uh, February 2020, but it was actually, was it February 2021 that you were in Calgary making the record?
1: Yeah, it was uh, March 2021, I guess uh, February, March.
2: Okay, so it, uh, so you were here, uh, so that's this year, so that, wow, this is a qu- quick turnaround on this record then, because as we're speaking, it is still 2021. Uh, this, mm-hmm. we, we should probably explain uh, what this record's all about, um, I will say, just to preemptively suggest to you that i have actually uh visited the national music center in calgary and and got a tour of tonto or rather i got a, I oh, got a cool. tour of the facility rather our family did i want to say it was in 2018 and
1: uh was it with jason
2: no it was a a, a person named Kay uh who i, okay. I don't know if Kay worked. I don't think I. Kay, uh, I knew uh, from her time with uh, the Daniel Romano uh, universe. Uh, Kay, cool. Kay used to collaborate there. And I didn't know Kay worked there. I just, uh, someone saw that I was, uh, our, my family and I were in the area uh, on vacation. This is obviously uh, 2018, well before we moved here, but we would my wife's family's from here. So we were visiting them in the summer and we were in. Uh, Canmore, and i was posting photos and someone uh uh, saw someone who works for the nmc saw that and said hey if you're on your way back to edmonton do you want to swing by here and get a tour that's the power of social media is all i'm saying robin that's pretty amazing don't you think and i was like yeah it's it's (laughs) great so i we said sure you know we were on our way back so we went in got like a apparently like i think we got like the special tour like we got to do stuff that some people. I'm not bragging. Yeah, yeah. I'm not bragging here. I'm just saying that that was nice. My son and yeah, I. I got
1: the same one. It's are exclusive. That's v- yeah. Actually. That's right. So
2: let's let's just revel in our. We don't have very much going on in our lives that's special, do we, Robin? Let's revel. No, no. Revel in our access to the National Music Center. Anyway, uh, yeah. My my son <sighs> and I. My son and I got to hang out for a little bit inside the Rolling Stones mobile studio unit that they have there, the the truck. Do you know that thing? Did you get to go to that? Yeah,
1: I saw it. I went in there. It's, it's so cool. It's
2: really rad. So uh, it was really fun. Anyway, full-on tour of this thing called uh, Tonto, uh, which is an acronym. Uh, can you tell the, uh, the, tell the folks at home what this is and, and what you got to do with it? Can you do that?
1: Yes. So... Okay, I did this a bunch for my for my PR. Let's see how I can do off the. It's been here. a
2: few months, right, since this record came out. So, are you rusty? Do you feel like you haven't done talked done a spiel in a while?
1: I think I've got it in my in my long term memory at this point. We'll see.
2: <laughs> okay, okay.
1: <laughs> um, so Tonto stands for the original New Tambral Orchestra, and it's a sort of Franken synth. Uh, that was built in the early '60s by these two guys, Malcolm Cecil, who was the primary engineer, and Robert Marguloff, who was his sort of musical and business partner. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm was an engineer, and Robert was—he was a Cold War photographer. I think in the Andy Warhol's Factory scene, oh. um, he filmed the first Edie Sedgwick movie, and had also gone to Tanglewood as a baritone. I think growing up, so he had. classical background and the first Moogs had just been released and Malcolm created Tonto I think essentially just as an experimental art project to to start and it combines two Moog Modular 3 systems and two ARP 2600 synthesizers as well as sort of a bunch of custom Surge and Oberheim um, modules, and he created um, one of the first universal voltage systems so that all the synths could play together as sort of a freestanding automaton without the voltage breaking. And he, he sort of, he jerry-rigged cables from old 747s and then, I think, like the main power cables from the original Apollo 11 mission.
2: Wait, wait, just a second. Just a second. So this is basically, it's a musical instrument, but you just invoked uh, an Apollo mission and a 747, like a jet? Do you mean like an airplane? Yeah. Okay, so there's aeronautics involved in this music-making device?
1: Yeah, totally. And he also um, used a joystick from a model, or like a remote control airplane to create the first pitch shift so that the mode could stay in tune because that was sort of the the main problem with with the early analog synthesizers is that they always detuned themselves it was sort of impossible to function so with this pitch shift which is sort of like a joystick um he could keep it in tune and that's how they originally got set up with stevie wonder um because they had the only moog in new york that would stay in tune
2: oh yeah it was kind of cool now I, I think uh, so. Early Moog explorers. Do you know Annette Peacock?
1: I know the name. I'm I'm kind of a poser to be honest. Okay. No, no, but no, no. I know Tonto quite well.
2: <laughs> yeah. So Annette Peacock, uh, I believe, got maybe like the first one. Annette Peacock is a musician. Uh, I got to interview uh, Annette at uh, Pop Montreal, and I feel like she was given like the first one. You should check out her music. It's great, and okay. she's odd. Uh, when we interview, uh, she like knew Elvis. And like met Elvis and like when he was like a young Elvis and got to go to like Elvis invited her and her friends to a party at Graceland and they got to go. And Annette told me the story that what she really didn't like about the experience was that uh, when Elvis would ask like his uh, the people who like the people who worked at his house, you know, like the and the people like working at the party to do something, they would like make fun of him when he left. Like roll their <laughs> eyes and make fun of Elvis. That's and,
1: terrible. Yeah, so she he, was. He really, must have been really rude to them when they were.
2: No, no. Apparently, were but tests. well, apparently he was not rude to anyone. He was very kind, and so, I think that came across. He was generally pretty sweet. I mean, until like the late sixties when. I mean, imagine being Elvis. He's like the first child star. Anyway, he yeah. he he and his you know he lost his mother. He's got some. He had a lot of trauma. Anyway, yeah, he had
1: a reason. Yeah, he was allowed to be like that. He was a Elvis. little
2: little off, but he was also very happy. And I think he no her thing was he seemed very sweet. They were very mean to him. Anyway, she got one of the first mogs and it was like ginormous. Like it was not like what we know. Like you pack it in a get in a taxi mm-hmm. cab with your Moog, right? It was you needed like a truck. To move yeah. these things, right? I mean, the thing you were talking about, taunt. I'm also, uh, you know, I don't know about you, I'm very immersed in Beatles land right now because of the Get Back document. I'm always kind of, they're always on my mind. But they, I watched the Get Back thing, and now I'm reading a book, uh, or rereading a book called uh, And in the End. And George Harrison also had a very early Moog, and he put it all over Abbey Road. Uh, really? Which, yeah, so he got one of the first ones too, and so they were making Abbey. It's not on the Let It Be sessions because he didn't have it quite yet. Yeah. But uh, he got it like within. That's so crazy how fast the Beatles work. So sixty nine, they're doing that Let It Be thing, and then within the before the end of the year, they make Abbey Road. Like they go through all that. Turmoil that everyone's talking about—that's depicted in "Get Back," and then they, uh, they, they, they make Abbey Road, which is a, a superior record and a more seriously made record. But he gets a Moog and starts to just add it to uh, uh, "I Want You," "She's So Heavy," and "Here Comes yeah, the like sun, sun King," yeah. "Sun King," and because—and that's all. He he retrospect. In, in retrospect, he said it was all so rudimentary because no one had ever used them before. Um, so anyway, all this to say, like. It sounds like Malcolm Cecil and and Robert Marguloff, they they were probably on the first floor of it too, right? Like the, in the earliest days of the Mogs, that's where they started to, to interact with them. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I I think so. And I think what kind of made that duo unique was that Malcolm had was coming at it from a physics perspective and understood the mechanics of how to get everything to function in a particular way. Um, which was maybe why it was able to get on so many records then, mm. versus kind of the what you were saying about George Harrison or I guess Gary Newman, where it, the moog is sort of a basic tool that your creative energy can build just off of basics rather than trying to be as complicated as possible.
2: Well, you're you're a multi instrumentalist, but you're frequently called upon to play some keyboards, uh, and is your background. Probably, what, uh, we've talked about this before, I'm pretty sure, but you have have Mm. a classical music background, right? Yep. And a piano is your primary instrument, if you will, your first one? Yes, yes. Right. I just am curious, and this might seem obvious, but what, what is it about, like a synthesizer or the Moogs that we're talking about, you know on the face of it, they look like generally they look like pianos they have the same interface if you will they've got keys and you play what is it in your mind as someone with your background and your skill set? what is it about like wouldn't it be cool to not just play piano but play like a fucked up sounding piano you know like why why do you get drawn to the like the not discordant or distorted but just like the I don't know the 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 tweaked Version of the same thing. Does that make sense? Like what What is it about? What do you, can you cap, can you kind of characterize what it appeals to you about playing that foundational instrument, but having it sound totally weird and strange?
1: Um, I think it's maybe similar to acoustic versus electric guitar. Is probably the most obvious comparison where there's a whole world of pedals and and tones that you can get into with electric guitar that you couldn't with with acoustic. Sure and. I mean, my favorite music is sort of 70s, 80s, top 40s. So I think then the synth was this, you know, before I guess Toto won the Grammy for album of the year and synth music kind of went on the outs for a bit. It was the sound of space. Like it was the I I wasn't alive at this time, but from what I gather from uh, absorbing it through pop culture, it it did seem to be the sound of the future at the time. Sort of. Yeah contacting space uh science fiction so i i think that's maybe what what drew me to it is attempting to connect with the musicians who's that i feel sort of the the music that i like from the 70s and 80s so how do i get those sounds
2: well you talked about acoustic uh and electric uh, and that can be said of of pianos as well, not just guitars. It could be a pianos, but there's also, I think, fundamentally, is there something going on there, Robin? Do you think about like reality versus surrealism? Like, are you drawn to surrealism in any other sense of the of the word?
1: Mm. I think so. Yeah, I think there's more. I'm coming at it from more of a pragmatic expect or er, uh, perspective. Yeah, there's more room for error on synthesizers, so if you mess up and a professional synth player is listening they'll be more likely to call that just a happy accident or something like that versus classical piano where it's a professional classical pianist listening to it would know that you were messing up
2: it's- <laughs> that's fascinating because i've been f- mucking around on my uh my kids uh, brand new electric uh keyboard i got him
1: oh yeah you did you get end up getting the yamaha
2: yeah, did I ask you about this? I did, didn't I? Did yeah, I yeah. Out? Yeah, I asked That's a few. Awesome. I, 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 what did I get? The Yamaha. I can't remember, but you told me. Did you tell me to get it? I don't no, remember. No, actually, I... you
1: just told me that you got it.
2: <laughs> oh, I did. Oh, I'm sorry. I think I was polling. No, you got
1: the right one, though. That's cool.
2: Yeah, it's like pretty multifaceted, and it wasn't particularly cheap or expensive. It was like whatever. But I, mm-hmm. anyway, I uh, what I was, I was. don't know how to play, really, but I'm, uh, I don't know how to play piano, but I'm trying to figure it out uh, just because... I spent 800 bucks on my kid's uh, keyboard, and he only plays it for like half an hour a day. I figure someone's got to get their money's worth, you know? So I go <laughs> down there, and I try to play, and I try to figure out... I'm just trying to figure out where all the notes are and stuff, you know, how you, you have to do it. But I sometimes will change the setting from piano to organ or electric piano because it's got those settings. And I find that I notice my mistakes more on the regular piano setting, the grand piano setting. But when mm-hmm. I play in the organ... I'm sure I'm making the same mistakes. What I've tried to teach myself to do is just play the same chord progression until I feel like I can... Again, Robin, you know this. We've played music together. I don't know what I'm doing. But I try to play. And You're I, good. Come on. Well, I can't really do much. I, I do what I can. But I, I, piano, for sure, it's always just mystified me. I think we... have. I My parents weren't really supportive of me and my interest in music, playing music. They just didn't... And really even listening to it. There's something... They didn't really like it. They thought it was leading me astray that I would be, uh, you know. I can relate to that. Yes, exactly. So anyway, what I'm saying is I find I notice my mistakes more when I'm doing the same three chord progression on the piano than the other uh, synthesized sounds. So I feel like it's actually, you're saying it's the opposite, uh, that uh, synthesizer synthesizer players would be like, ha, 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 you're making a mistake.
1: No, 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 that's the... I'm, I'm agreeing with you Oh
2: you are Okay there's more yeah. There's more leeway With the synthesis. Like yeah okay I get it now Okay so Like
1: the I put out a synth album I guess in 2019 Because I wanted to get Kind of a Composer residency At the CFC And I figured Ooh they'll, they'll be impressed If I say I've put out An experimental synth record So I just Hit record And For six hours And then took Nine Ten minute chunks Right And you know Call myself Tangerine Dream, but and and then didn't get the residency. But it, <laughs> <laughs> I'm much more comfortable doing that on synthesizer than piano.
2: I see. Okay. Sorry, just for people listening and even myself, what does CFC stand for?
1: Oh, the Canadian Film Center.
2: <laughs> oh, see, I didn't even know what that, I didn't know what the F stood for. I wouldn't have guessed film for some reason. Okay. So that, <laughs> it, and you get a residency. Where is that? Is that in Toronto?
1: It's in Toronto, yeah. And they, they offer residencies that place composers with directors so that you can oh. build a reel and, you know, get some great Canadian uh, entertainment industry connections.
2: <laughs> Sorry. I think you were being sincere with that, but it also sounded No, no, hilarious. I was
1: <laughs> But at that point, like, I was I was broke, so I just, you know, I'll do whatever to try yeah. and gain some traction. Have you, d-
2: have you done much um, film work or advertising work or anything like that?
1: No, I... I mean, not for lack of trying, but I have done some podcast work the, over the past year. I mm-hmm. wrote music for an episode of Blowback, um, season two, which was really fun, and yeah. then the True and On podcast. I did some music oh, yeah. for an episode as well.
2: Isn't that a big deal? That one,
1: I think so. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they kind of that's a big part. show,
2: isn't it? I thought that was a big show. So you just yeah. is that just through networking, or do you have like a are you in some sort of union where you get the work, or how does that work?
1: It was just through Twitter that that's a testament to the power of social media. I I met one of the hosts of that podcast through the Blink One Eighty Two podcast community. Just oh right, you
2: know. the Blink One Fifty Five.
1: Yeah, Blink One Fifty Five.
2: Right, right. Yeah, that thing's taken off. Or well, is it? I, I can't remember. They got through all the songs. I was talking to Sam a couple months ago, uh, and we talked a little bit. Uh, talked a little bit of shop. Uh, uh, Sam Sutherland, one of the, yeah, the yeah, hosts. He's- yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's an old friend of mine. Oh, so I, I,
1: I know, but I guess the listeners don't necessarily. Well, yeah,
2: sorry. I'm trying. I it's a weird thing, right? We're talking to each other, but I have to talk to you as though uh, the people, you know, I'm talking to the listeners too. You see, that's how. <laughs> sorry, that's how I'm they just... become
1: parasocial friends with us.
2: <laughs> anyway, so that show did well. So you, yes, and you were a guest on that show. Is that right?
1: I was a guest on Blink One Fifty Five. I guess the start of January, twenty nineteen. And so so the, a long time the, ago.
2: So the premise is that you talk. They don't always just talk about Blink One Eighty Two. So did you end up talking uh, with some degree of passion about that band, or what did you end up talking about?
1: I went on a Blink One Eighty Two episode like while they were still doing those songs. I know they're not anymore, yeah, but right. uh, I guess I got into that podcast right around the time that we played that wedding in Alora, or was oh, it Alora or Toronto?
2: You you mean um, you, oh in our band the wedding band yeah 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 uh, I, I,
1: I just started listening to it because I it was such a sort of nice disconnect from all the music I normally listen to and I found the hosts really enjoyable to listen to
2: yeah Sam and Josiah are great but were you yeah. uh, are you a fan of, or were you or are you a fan of that Blink One Eighty Two band?
1: Mm, no, but I was enough of a fan that it was in like it was funny to me. as like a a bit that was just funny for me myself that I was getting into it.
2: Yeah, fair enough. I've often had younger people on the show, uh, younger than me anyway. They're not that much younger, like 10, 10, 15 years, 10 years maybe younger than me, sometimes younger than that. But they'll start to extol the virtues of Blink-182. And all of my main memory of that band is just like, at the end of my tenure of being like a devoted much music watcher, Mm -hmm. there was lots of videos by that band on like that was my main exposure to them was them making kind of ironic videos and like some i don't know one of their albums had like a a buxom nurse on it or something and i was like i don't really like this like something about it i don't really like stuff like that i like doctors and nurses i just didn't like the kind of i don't like sexualized crap stuff like that so i didn't know but i didn't know if they were doing it ironically or not I couldn't tell but anyway something about it didn't it just wasn't my time to spend time with that band and uh mm-hmm. but so many young people that I, younger people that appear on this show will bring them up and i will be like really and then those guys started that podcast and then you were on it anyway mm-hmm. it seems like there's a whole and, and like when like in Canada here we have exclaim magazine and they have like a trending uh, section of their website for like articles that are doing well and that anytime they cover that band if I go to that section, the trending section, yeah, there's two or three Blink 182 stuff. They just seem very popular still. Mm-hmm. So anyway, and I like we should also say that I f- probably f- did we first encounter each other because you were in that band Sheezer? Yep. Right, that's right. You were on. I uh, we did an interview, right? We did a like we a did remote. an
1: interview, but we played a set at E Bar. It was your cover band that the Gordon Brothers were in, and Sheezer played that show.
2: Yes, that's right. Okay, so. That's right. So Sheezer was a Weezer sort of tribute band, but it was all uh, people who identified as women at the time and you were in it. And uh, that's how I think. Yeah, that's pretty much how we met. Were you in other bands besides that one? Like around that time in Toronto?
1: Not really. I I guess I played in Henry Fabergé's band. Oh, yeah. Um, a few times. And then the Jesse Out had a band called The Incidentals that I played in.
2: Okay. So you're in the periphery at least, if not in it, like the kind of Toronto indie rock world, yeah, so how does that happen you You come from a classic and I know this is very common among Toronto musicians who are uh like yourself like they get they're formally trained and have a background in one thing, and then some enterprising indie rock person notices this somehow and says, "Hey, can you join our band like mm-hmm. we need We need someone exactly with your skill set i I think but at the same time you're your whole life was basically devoted to classical music how do you enter the indie rock realm exactly robin
1: um so i got into weezer i think through through myspace this is embarrassing i was on a message board for a band called rooney which were on the oc because i i had a crush on a guy at my high school who really liked the oc the tv (laughs) show yeah that Um, was a
2: popular show i remember that Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah
1: and so this this band rooney wasn't very popular but it so the message board only had kind of six other girls my age, some of whom I'm still pretty close with.
2: Um, and how, how how old are you at this time? 33. No, 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 no. How old are you oh, when you're sorry. on the message board?
1: i <laughs> um,
3: 14. <laughs>
2: so you're like, why, why is he suddenly asked, acting like a border official? Tell yeah. me your age immediately. No, you were 13 and on this message board. That's what you're saying? Yeah,
1: or sorry. No, I would have been 15, grade 10.
2: Great 10, 15. Okay, that's a pivotal foundational time. You're getting into your own stuff. Uh, yeah, and so, then I
1: met, you know, Colin Medley?
2: Oh, well, yes, he's a dear, dear friend of mine. Yes, we. T- yes, he's one of my best friends, I guess, somehow. Yeah, um, yeah, so
1: I I was in line for a Weezer concert, the first show they played, I think it was in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was behind Colin Medley in line for the show. So oh, okay. we became friends just waiting outside for five hours and Wait, was this came- at
2: Ontario Place? This was this was at the Cool
1: House. They played with Ringside or something. Uh, oh, okay. Right when the Make Believe album with Beverly Hills. I think the album wasn't out yet, but Beverly Hills was.
2: Oh, I see. Do you know I saw them on the Blue Album tour?
1: That's pretty, that's great.
2: I saw them at the Cool House the day after Edge Fest 95, which was uh, commandeered by Sloan, the band Sloan. And then... Uh, yeah. They Sloan did that and it was announced as their final show. Everyone thought it was their last show, but they did end up playing an afternoon show in Buffalo. I feel like that Weezer show I saw at the it was also weirdly at the cool house. Uh but I think it was called some the warehouse, maybe. Anyway, mm-hmm. Sloan went and played in Buffalo and then they rushed back to see Weezer. So I ran into like and you know, I'm a kid at this point, so I, I Mm-hmm. When you see Sloan, you get to freak out a little bit. So I did. Uh, oh, I so like, oh my oh my god! You're at the Weezer show, anyway. And then I was also in the Weezer fan club. Uh, I was uh, member one, two, three, four. That was my member number. So oh, cool.
1: So you know the whole kind of Carl. Carl
2: yes, Michael and that? Carly. You mean oh, yeah. Car- yeah. oh, and Carl oh, the Carl fan club. The, the yeah, pool, yeah, yeah, the fan Nicole club dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. I, well, it's a, I'm a. I have not again like Blink One Eighty Two. Weezer is this massive cult band where again any coverage on the exclaim site or anywhere they seem to just make the news and so yeah so and then yeah you're younger than me so a whole generation uh of people got into them around yeah that beverly hills song and uh and then the the green album was before that right
1: it was before that yeah Yeah. when i got into them rivers was still a recluse and hadn't released music in so long and there was all this pressure for for them to put out sort of a hit record which was what they tried to do with make-believe oh man i've got a good story as an aside about this you know <laughs> that band <laughs> uh hot hot heat
2: oh yeah from uh, uh, victoria or vancouver or whatever yeah 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 yeah,
1: yeah so supposedly they were going to work with rick rubin on on a record around that time i think like after bandages something like that yeah and rick rubin said i'll work with you guys but the first single has to be we're going to use the chord progression from pour some sugar on me and that's it's going to be a hit what and it it has to be that and they kind of said like all right we're not going to do this um but weezer did and the song is beverly hills
2: so it's it's the exact chord progression is oh it is it is the exact same chord progression Rick Rubin yeah, is Rick Rubin is weird. That is really weird. Yeah, why yeah. why would you <laughs> pick that story. thing? Why would he get so fixated on that? That's weird. <laughs> yeah. I know. Okay, why wow. I
1: he's not I mean it was a hit and it but very strange.
2: Well I didn't know. I would not have was that commonly known that they had they copied it? It's like the same chorus now. No, I think, no, I think
1: that's like, I don't even know if I'm sp- supposed to tell you that, but I don't so. get <laughs> it.
2: So you see Weezer. Oh, no, I hope uh, I don't anti- get
1: any exposure from seeing that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exposure? I don't know if that's... A- anyway, you, so yeah, in, t- in 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 2004, you see Weezer. That's the mm. first time seeing them?
1: Yep. Yeah. And then I-, I met Colin Medley, and he started taking me out to see... Uh, he was really into Jim Guthrie, Gentleman Reg, uh toronto indie band yeah. so i think my first indie show was going to see the three gut records closing party okay and then got into like final fantasy arcade fire wolf parade
2: Was the three gut sort of thing you're the, talking about at like the transact and lee's palace and stuff
1: yeah it was at the transact um
2: do you remember me and, rapping with jim guthrie
1: yeah <laughs> Oh man, I I mean I didn't know it was you but I do remember that So you were at that show
2: I was at that show and uh, I don't know how I ended up on stage Jim used to do, did I do It Takes Two? I feel like I did At the end of maybe turn Musician Jim used to do his own, he would do a version of It Takes Two by Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock And I feel like that's what I did or maybe I did something else I might have done a hockey rap I don't remember what was going on but I did some sort of rapping
1: I vaguely remember, you know. I mostly just remember the the concert. I remember Gentleman Reg doing a Elliott Smith cover. That
2: was I see, pretty,
1: yeah, pretty awesome. I'm sorry, I don't. I'm sorry, I didn't remember. No,
2: no, no, no. Don't, don't apologize. I brought it up. How the hell? How the hell, I I just know that it might have been something where I freestyle. I just did something, and I wasn't supposed to do it. And uh, it was nice of Jim to call me up to do something. And uh, anyway, so that's weird. We yeah, were both. He's so cool. He's great. Yeah, he's also uh, one of my better, better, best friends. You know, he, I play music of his on the show to end the show every week. So uh, I talk about him just in that context in the outro. So yeah, Jim's a great. So anyway, that's cool. So that's how you got into. So basically, Colin Medley, who also an instigator for me doing this show, as I recall, it was like you should do the show or something. I can't remember. But anyway, yeah. So Colin is an in, he's an, he's an instigator.
1: <laughs> yeah, Colin. And then I think through him, I got on to Still Post.
2: Oh, right. The message uh, boards. Yes. Which, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Kind of eight months before it shut down. And that's how I, I also had like a bit of a problematically older friend in in high school who, you know, not in that way, it wasn't like romantic, but he was King Con and barbecue shows tour manager. So he would oh. take me to see them hmm. and Deadly Snakes and sort of learned about Dan Burke via him and the Still Post scene, that kind of whole yeah. The cool Toronto punk culture
2: scene. Yeah, the still post thing was pretty good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I I would, I feel like they had satellite boards for like different regions. And, uh, but you could also just participate in the Toronto discussions. And it was always uh, very fun. Owen Pallet was pretty prominently on there, uh, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And, uh, okay. So you're immersed in the indie rock world. Did it blow your mind coming from where you came from, like the classical world? Like, were you just like, holy shit, there's a whole other side to music like do you have that memory
1: yeah i think i remember seeing owen pallet right when he first started using loop pedals Mm -hmm. and even then thinking like i could i could never do this i think it took a while for me to make the connection like what i'm doing on classical piano would equip me well to try and do music like what owen pallet is doing but it just seemed like this sort of inaccessible other realm of like very talented musicians that i you know, although I wish I had understood that they were closer than I thought.
2: Well, there's a certain... You mentioned Owen Pallett, and he is a very sophisticated... i got to be careful with this. I think a lot of... I think there would be a perception that the indie rock or underground rock stuff would be um, less complicated than the classical stuff. Mm-hmm. Was that your perception? Because you you mentioned Owen, who's also classically trained, formally trained, to do everything he can do, um, and he was at the forefront. He was among the real leaders in that community, inspiring mm-hmm. people, uh, and and playing ostensibly almost exclusively with violin uh, and keyboards, um, not necessarily indie rock instrumentation. If we want to be stereotypical about it, like I feel like you seeing Weezer on the one hand and other bands like that. Um, but then also seeing what Owen or maybe Laura Barrett even like just yeah in, Laura Barrett was huge yeah, yeah like just seeing these people who who figured out that they could apply their incredible talents and skills that for some of us would be like oh like that's high highfalutin you know you went you got trained how to do stuff whereas some of us came from it like I've never had one lesson I I've never. Mm-hmm. had any training. I just went at it. And that was kind of the spirit of what we were also supporting. So you're in a, an interesting realm because I think you saw the the passion and the power of people making stuff up as they went along, maybe not even knowing how to read music, but putting forth something really incredible. But you also had people like Owen and yourself and and Laura Barrett. And there's probably a billion others that I'm missing right now that really did know music inside and out, mm-hmm. but were, were also existing in this realm anyway sorry i'm, I'm yeah it's interesting it, to, to yeah. draw
1: a parallel in my head between barbecue have you seen barbecue live before
2: Mark uh yeah Sultan? i think i saw them at the i want to say i saw them at the horseshoe once like uh, he does somehow. the
1: one-man band where he plays the drum set and guitar and sings
2: oh okay oh sorry Not you're not talking about king khan king khan no and no bar- oh sorry but no i don't his... think i no no sorry i don't think i've seen barbecue then oh
1: you gotta you gotta see him um is barbecue
2: is that an active uh, entity
1: I think so. I think he just did a couple shows last month. But yeah, I guess in a way, what he's doing is fundamentally not that different in terms of performance from what Owen Pallett's doing, kind of a lot of things at once very proficiently. Mm. But okay. uh, for barbecue, it's there's this whole like, it's cool to not know music classically. Like, it's cool to have been untrained as a musician. I think that's a, a yeah. belief that even with the Beatles, like you isn't there some like John Lennon couldn't read music that Paul can't read music.
2: No, none of them Paul could. can't read music. No, none yeah, of them I've, could,
1: you know, but they could, they, okay, I'm not going to try. I'm not going to dispute that. <laughs> I haven't seen the documentary. Um,
2: well, no, no, they, no, it's not just about the documentary. They're famously were, they did not know. And oh, sorry, the, just ahead of the get back documentary uh, on uh, also on the Disney channel, which I'll give them mm-hmm. a nice, they need the, they need to the plug. Yeah. There's a documentary series between the aforementioned Rick Rubin and Paul McCartney. Uh, oh, yeah. Rather, it features both of them kind of in conversation. And one of the reasons I, I just mentioned to you that I've been trying to go muck around on the piano, or the keyboard in my basement now. One of the reasons is I stumbled upon a someone excerpted a video from that Rick Rubin, Paul McCartney series where McCartney talks about how he thinks piano, anyone could play piano. And he just goes through the the motions of like, look, here's a chord. Here's, here's six chords. Here's three fingers, six chords. And from that, this is how we started. We didn't know how to play piano, John and I. We just started to muck around, figure out where the, the notes were, how to make chords, and then he starts playing some Beatles songs to, to demonstrate that the foundation of him and John having the time and patience to just try to figure the instrument out as best they could led mm-hmm. him to write some of the most iconic Piano parts, probably of all time, right? Like, just it's very fascinating, and that that spirit is there too. Like, I'll just figure this out, but he makes a point again of saying, "I can't read, can't read music, don't know how to do it."
1: Mm-hmm. Does that and that calls in, yeah. sort of this whole idea of authenticity. Like, which of is it is it more authentic to t- approach the instrument from the Beatles perspective? You know, the the gods, the Beatles who. Like, should you be ashamed of your classical upbringing, kind of thing? Or, I mean, I would say that, especially John, towards the end was getting into more twentieth-century experimental music.
2: Sure, well, which Yoko in a as way well. was classical. Yeah, yeah. yeah Yoko opened him up, and Yoko could play, and, and that's like what
1: Revolution Nine even is pretty. Yeah, I didn't get it before, but you know, the last couple of years, I'm like, wow, this really is interesting that a top forty artist released this song.
2: I, I think they were um despite their omnipresence and ubiquity and their even their early stuff I think is really sophisticated for what it was but i think mm-hmm. I think they really approached music as open ended and that's what you discovered you know even when he was in the Beatles George Harrison made a a record called Wonderwall that's just you know like a noise experiment basically of of some kind like they they seem drawn to every aspect of what you could do with music I mean you know it's it's almost a cliche that Harrison went and made a point of learning how to play sitar and he got trained he got he went to see Ravi Shankar mm-hmm. who taught him how to play like that's a that's a level of interest and curiosity and an understanding that music is is potentially uh, something that you can just constantly like you're never done learning Uh, I guess Um, so I don't know if you have that you get to go to the national is it am I saying it right it is called the National Music Center right in Calgary the NMC. yeah so you get to go there Uh, is that the first time you didn't in February 2021 you were uh, aware of it of this system there but had you ever Mm -hmm. encountered it in in person before you got to go and play on it for this record
1: so I met Malcolm at a trade show in 2016 Hmm. at the Nam show in Anaheim and just approached this kind of mad scientist looking guy and said, who are you? In a kind of weird spectrumy way. And he told me all about Tonto, gave me an autographed CD and got really especially into Stevie Wonder after that. Hmm. And then I was on tour with the band Whitehorse in Calgary in the start of... 2019. No, the it was around Canada Day 2019. And had a day off, heard about Tonto and wrote an email that was like, I was in Our Lady Peace. I play with Luke Set, you know, uh-huh. and name every possible connection. Yeah, yeah. name dropping, yeah. which I <laughs> try. I, you know, the Canadian in me hates, but sometimes you got to do it. And got a VIP tour, sort of like the one you got. Um, yeah. And I, I posted about that. And then. Another cool social media thing. My friend Ross reached out to me. He's in the VR microphone industry. And he said, I know Robert Margalef quite well. Oh. If you ever want to get in touch with him, let me know. So I was in LA the following month for uh, for my brother's wedding. Mm-hmm. And met up with Robert then. And he was one of the few people who... I had a piano album out at that point and played him kind of my classical recordings. And he went like, oh, if you split this particular recording into four voices you could make it a quartet
2: Four what what is that for those of us uh, can you tell the people at home what that means what does four voices mean
1: uh, so easiest way I can explain it is in in Bach if he's got preludes and fugues and the preludes always have two voices so it's sort of two melodies playing at the same time right and melody and counter melody a fugue will have three voices where there's there's a third melody that goes sort of in between the hands and the at that level of playing you're you have to make each voice distinct so it really functions like a three separate voices even though it's two hands
2: I see right
1: so he said the way that this that I like to compose I don't know would suit quartets if I wanted to do that and at that point I knew about the residencies at the NMC so Robert kind of endorsed me for doing this which i think maybe helped juice my application a
2: bit um oh, nice that's amazing yeah so this is after one encounter with you yeah yeah so this <laughs> he, is well he, that's a nice testament to you robin like you're i i you know this i think you're lovely and great but like it's great i, I feel like you meet people you make an impression right away you're talented so they hear what you can do And then they want you to, what, be in their bands. They want you to, like, they set, they juice, they help you juice up your application. That's great. I just wanted to say, I think it's great.
1: Oh, thanks. Thank you. That's nice of you to say. Yeah.
2: So that's cool. So then you, so they say, okay, if Robert vouches for Robin, we're sure. And so then the pandemic happens uh, and everything's kind of screwy, I guess, in terms of timelines. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was supposed to happen July, 2020, and then got pushed back to i got the call the start of february and then it happened in march of this year
2: so okay so is that is that the first so you got to do the tour but the february 20 or or, sorry march 2021 is that the first time you laid hands on the thing yes okay so for those who haven't seen it it is uh well I'll i'll let you do it can you describe physically what it looks like to enter the room and then approach this machine and then within that I call it a machine. I don't know what else to call it, but within that, can you talk about how you laid these recordings down? Uh, if they're live, if uh, if it's mm. just you by yourself running around the thing. Sorry, there's a lot for you to explain, but I just want to paint a picture for people.
1: Right. So it's it's massive. This <laughs> it's very big. Uh, it's if you picture like a triptych painting, it sort of looks like a strange piece of abstract art that is also ergonomic uh it's like 10 so feet the, tall
2: eight feet tall how tall is it i can't remember it's, it's yeah
1: i'd say it's eight yeah eight or nine feet tall yeah and
2: and it's shaped like a u it's like a yeah it's, it's
1: shaped sort of room shaped and the the synths are built to kind of curve in towards the player so that you wouldn't be reaching up exactly vertically um mm-hmm. the synths would kind of lean over so you wouldn't have to do that right. so what would i compare it to i know i'll think of it uh in in a bit but the way that i recorded on it was because i didn't have a ton of time you can run midi into the synthesizer so i pre-wrote in logic basically midi compositions Mm -hmm. that then ran out as four separate channels into the arps oberheims and, and Moog modulars and the biggest challenge i guess was creating the tones themselves rather than the actual writing itself. Uh, So I'm I'm lucky that the software VSTs that they have now, sort of the Arturia modular and uh, ARP software, has pretty accurate interfaces. So if you dial in a preset patch, it'll show you exactly what it looks like. So for the ARPs, I would use print-offs of those pictures plus the sort of original patch manual and just... Try and make as accurate or as close to what I demoed as as I could, and then tuning—it's a whole other kind of nightmare. And then, do you, Jason, do you, the engineer? Do
2: you have to tune it, or does an engineer tune it?
1: Uh, I would tune it. Like the tuning itself isn't—it's not like kind of a guitar tuning with a boss pedal. It's yeah. or it is in in theory, but it really is—you have to turn the knob just the tiniest bit; uh, otherwise, it'll just completely mess up but then there's other sort of dials on the synthesizer where if you hit the wrong thing the entire thing will detune all of a sudden so I you see. have to be really it takes a lot
2: and you're a long and, time. You're, and what do you have perfect pitch or something do you tune by ear is that how you tune
1: um i had tuners i'd sort of try to tune by ear but the we also had room mics set up or everything was running it through a pa in the room and oh. an interesting thing is there's kind of a doppler effect with the synthesizer so it could sound really in tune when you're standing in the kind of circle of the synthesizer yeah because you're hearing everything in conjunction with each other and then you hear the playback and it's like this sounds like shit but uh (laughs) it's very
2: it's all very technical i mean that's the 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 way of kind of it's a very technical exercise you have to know all all the stuff you're saying like i'm sure some people are like oh i know what that means And, and other people listening might be like i don't know what any of this means but it's ostensibly you're just describing the process of, of just getting the thing running and you coming in prepared with with music. But also, mm-hmm. I assume you're... Because you are, you are uh, an improviser as well, right? Some of what we're hearing is... A lot of what we're hearing is sort of improvised in some regard. Is that right?
1: I'd say four of the songs have overdubs from the other synthesizers that they let me bring into the studio, which was very cool mm. as well. But most of the recordings are basically four sets of data which were running into the synthesizers that then spit out those particular sounds.
2: I see. Okay.
1: Um, But you see why Stevie Wonder wanted to use this synth because there was a guy who would sit in the booth who had perfect pitch and would manually tune things with the joystick as it was recording, sort of like he would auto-tune on the fly. Oh, Um, wow. Okay. Yeah, which, you know, I didn't... We we don't have that luxury now. Uh, so, <laughs> I when I mastered the album with Robert, he had me go back and retune a bunch of the of the recordings to sound. How can I explain this? So, in orchestras, let's say you have three violins or two violins and a viola. Yeah. The, in order for them to sound in tune with each other, the first violin has to be detuned slightly. And by, you know, two or three cents, if you're thinking of it in terms of a guitar tuning pedal. And Mm -hmm. the lower note has to be kind of a bit higher in order for them to sound in intonation with each other. So everything being in tune would sound bad, but you have to go in and sort of individually retune each note so that it sounds both separate in terms of voices and as a single unit if that makes sense
2: it, it does make sense But when Robert suggests You have to go And tweak these things How do you do that Do you have to replay them
1: I had to It was so embarrassing I, I got Melodyne The sort of auto-tune software Oh okay. and it But it wasn't even Just click auto-tune Like I had to go in And each note Retune by sense And it took a long time
2: Oh man Okay But that's his That's Robert's ear Picking up yep. on something Like would the average person Have even noticed What Robert was talking about
1: no, I I don't think so. No, no, but. that's not true. I think it does sound better because I did that, but it, it, was, <laughs> yeah. it was a lot of I think work. Had I had two weeks at the NMC, I could have just done that there.
2: Yeah. So you're you're at the NMC, I think, by yourself. Oh, well, you said there was an engineer. Uh but yeah. you're there ostensibly by yourself. But then the record when it comes out, or before it's done, I should say, you you have some guests, is that right?
1: Yeah, I got a bit of factor funding and so i i got some session players eric slick is someone that i followed on twitter for a year who his wife went to high school with my internet friends from those message boards
2: oh i see okay yeah
1: um so i had reached out prior to be like isn't that what a small world um and (laughs) (laughs) and then said like do you want to play you know i'm sure you don't want to do this but would you do you want to play on this and then he agreed and then I was friends with Nick Thorburn already, so Nick agreed and got sort of some cool players that way on the record to to just kind of I'm at this point there it makes the record sound incredible or more incredible <laughs> more incredible than it already is. I don't think that. And uh but in terms of getting press, I thought it would help too to, to have some big names associated with the project.
2: Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you also have uh Leland Whitty from Bad Bad Not Good, right?
1: Yeah. Who's yeah. just kind of... I think both him and Eric just did one take and they, they're they yeah. real, you know, real deals.
2: Yeah, they're bonkers. And then, uh, yeah, and then uh, Joseph Shabison's on a, a, a tune, the standoff, I yeah. believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is, I don't... is And Lowell Witty as well. Is that Leland's brother?
1: It's Leland's brother, yeah. He's how I got in touch with Leland. I originally asked him to play drums on the track and then Leland recorded it and reached out and said he would be interested so
2: nice yeah so little and then laura bates is the only, i think the other person right
1: yeah we met playing in uh Iskway's band oh nice three three or four years ago and then uh she's got a great metal project called volour and then right. so I, I reached out to her
2: nice okay so you have some friends it's a little friendly and you say with all honesty that you thought having some names would help just get some the word out about the record well the record's been out a little bit now Was Mm -hmm. it received in a way that you were happy with? Uh, Were there? Were there?
1: I think so. I I got a Wire review. This is. I mean, I got some amazing press. I got a Wire review that just said it's it's not as good as the Stevie Wonder records. Right. Of course. Which is so incredibly (laughs) harsh and British, but also, you know, in some ways, the best review I could have hoped for. And since that, I hope I never get a Pitchfork review because it, you know, gave me ego death for for three days. But I hired a USPR guy for the first time which I learned is the best way to get Canadian press
2: yeah I, isn't it's, it sad like I, I'm I'm in yeah. the same boat like I this show that you're on does gargant like I mean not gargantuan but it, the numbers compared to Can- to Canada in terms of you know listeners or whatever the downloads it's like massive in America compared to here and mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend of mine about it the other day and he's like yeah like and he's like a Canadian person who's very familiar with the industry and as I am, as you are now, uh, and he was just like, "Yeah, you." It just might be too big for Canada. I'm like, I don't think it doesn't feel too big for Canada. The show, but at the same time, that speaks to something. It doesn't. It, it for what for whatever reason, our media outlets care more about stuff that we make when uh, people in America or England talk about it. And I don't. That's still the case. It's so bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: No, I know it's it's strange, but it. I don't know. If you think about the bands that get successful, like Canadian successful here now and that we hear on the radio, it maybe it makes a bit more sense. Um,
2: Well, I just I think what we're both getting at is that for whatever reason, Canadians look for external validation before they recognize their own. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, anyway, that's that's there's probably some to it. Like, oh, my God, it's that's
1: the Neil Young, Joni Mitchell model.
2: (laughs) I guess so. I think it's just like. it's just frustrating because they sleep on it's it would be one thing if the they were all over it and then it took off elsewhere but it's usually the opposite which i find and they don't it's no one learns from that uh so it's confusing and i don't understand it either and i'm i've i've been a part of it working at cbc sorry i would say i'm not i don't i never believe in that stuff i just Uh, I I just think you you cover what you like or you talk to who you like and Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter where they're from. Uh, That's my philosophy. And I I don't, you know, I know there's things like Canada Land or there's other shows that are like, we only talk about this genre of music, but that's just not how I work personally. Like I think, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're the same. You just process information from all over the world and it has equal footing uh, as maybe not as much as maybe your friends in your community doing well. That's a bit different. Mm -hmm. That's a different feeling. But I'm not a nationalist (laughs) when it comes to art. Like, what the hell? So anyway, that's... There's definitely
1: more people in the States for niche content, which I I would say what both of us are doing would qualify as maybe alternative.
2: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, covering underground or making or covering uh, slightly subversive stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's...
1: Whereas in... In Toronto I feel like if you say you're doing that you have to prove yourself to a you know an entire indie scene of people that with these you know specific record labels that have certain tastes and noise and modular it's like you you have to impress a bunch of people that can't help you at all in order to get a very small amount of success in Toronto but yeah. if you just put your music out online you'll find a bunch of you know video game fans or podcasts hosts who Connect with your music without even having to go through all this, you know, get on Buzz Records or yeah, yeah, um, yeah. hand drawn Dracula songs.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't know; it's all sort of luck and timing, and maybe what people are even ready for. I remember hearing—I wasn't there, but I remember hearing a story that uh, Chad Van Galen was playing at. I want to say it was at the Great Hall, probably for something like North by Northeast or Canadian Music Week or something like that. And apparently the show was sold out, uh, but he was actually um, playing before someone else. And after he was done, apparently most of the room emptied, and the next person up on stage was Grimes. And and then subsequently we kind of know what happened there. I'm not extolling the virtues of I love Chad. I'm not. I helped Grimes set up her stuff at Hillside once, and it was a slight mm-hmm. ordeal. But uh, but also fine. Like I helped her just get everything. It was a quick transition, so I was there. That time there,
1: was uh, wild. That was the Mac Demarco year too, I think.
2: At, at Hillside
1: or at North by Northeast.
2: Oh yeah, maybe like it was. was. Yeah, the, yeah. When it, he
1: famously put the pencil in his butt.
2: Right. Were <sighs> you Were you at that Chad Van Galen show though? That I was. Talking no, about? no. I, okay. I.
1: You know, I never went out. I, I just, just heard
2: you. You never went out. I I just heard that people left. Not it wasn't anything uh, against Grimes per se. Just they didn't know who she was and I mean the first, the first Arcade Fire show I set up in Guelph was at a tiny little bar and admittedly it was too long a bill but it was just one of those situations where uh, they, they wanted someone to play and, and uh, local headliner uh, or local artists wanted their friends to play so it was a bit of a long bill but they played last and everyone kind of split and the first song they played was Wake Up and everyone who was there was like what the fuck is this like holy shit yeah. And I'd already I'd already seen them a couple of times, so I kind of knew what they were about. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's just weird it, timing stuff.
1: I saw Grimes actually at a house party that year, and I was stoned and I laughed like too loudly um, during her <laughs> set, and she made eye contact with me. It was just you know twenty people in a backyard, and it probably came from a place of jealousy or something. She had the same synthesizer as me, oh. and I I didn't have any. I'd never checked out Joanna Newsom or. Yeah, I, I didn't understand strange women in music at oh, that point. Interesting. So, but then it was actually yeah, my American friends telling me about Grimes after the fact, ironically, yeah. uh, that made me go, "Oh, I guess what she's doing is kind of cool." I was just coming from my sort of. It reminds me of the uh, comedy community in the sense that when I worked at Second City, I had to watch a bunch of old stock footage of Second City performances, uh-huh. and the Chicago audiences. Are very kind and laugh at everything, including stuff that's not very funny, in my opinion. Yeah. Versus the Toronto crowds where it's dead silence, everyone's really critical, and the stuff's funnier.
2: Well, I mean, Toronto is notoriously known as the screw face capital. You know, you go to shows, and if people aren't watching you with their arms crossed, you know prove it yeah. prove it to me they're talking over your set uh, and so that's been my experience like whenever i would go to anything in america if i went to a base, I went to a baseball game in chicago and it changed my life cuz i'd only been to sh- uh, blue jays games at the skydome mm-hmm. and it was all just like loud music and like advertising and like people being complete assholes like the aud- yeah. the the fans and then i went to Wrigley Field and it was beautiful It was before they... I I think they've subsequently changed it. I went in like 2013, I want to say, or 2014. And uh, with Colin Medley, oddly enough, he and I were there with with Fucked Up. Uh, Fucked Up were making a record at Electrical Audio. And uh, I got to go down with Colin and we filmed some stuff and made some stuff with Fucked Up. But anyway, Josh from Fucked Up and Colin and I, at Josh's suggestion, we decided to catch a Cubs game. It was great. It was like amazing. People seemed to respect the game. There was no, the, the PA announcements were like, uh, uh, by the way, don't forget to check out uh, Bill's insurance. You know, Bill, <laughs> Bill from on uh, that street, go go to his insurance place. It was very quaint and old timey. And, you know, we were right by the, the scoreboard. It was great. And so, yeah, this mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it is. I think maybe Canadians realize that something's not right about how we do things. And so we're all kind of cynical and unforgiving compared to Americans who, like you said earlier, maybe they're just a little more relaxed and can deal with stuff uh, in a way that we can't. So I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, just rambling. Before we go to, uh, I don't know, do you have any, do you want to say anything about this uh, perspective? No,
1: no, I thought that was, I think that's cool how you tied that in a bow. Okay. That
2: was really, yeah, I I loved it. (laughs) Now, in terms of what, we've talked about the sounds, we've talked about your interest in music and why Tonto appealed to you and the connections you made that got you there, and, and the the subsequent connections you made uh, to, to get people on the record or work on the record in some capacity. There's been some language about the record that suggests some of it is about you processing uh, emotions wordlessly. And did you want to say anything about that? And is there something we can look out for in terms of that uh, emo- emotive quality?
1: Um, I think... I mean I expanded on it a bit in interviews like I I like named the guy who like abused me in a relationship a long time ago during the pandemic and sort of It's always been a big source of shame and also since becoming sober I've realized it's been one of the reasons why it's been It's stressful for me to play in bands uh, because I I was also in a band with that person um a long a long time ago, uh, so I think I became interested in sort of a neoclassical perspective about using a composition the way you'd see a piece of art in a gallery where it says, you know, this is the the meaning of this this abstract painting or something like that. So I think setting out to write compositions where the goal is to tell a story or a narrative is more interesting to me than traditional harmony theory it's like one of the reasons I didn't go to school for for music but uh, the song airplane that Laura Bates plays on is sort of the most the one where I really tried to pour pour all of my emotions into into that song I guess in terms as a way to selfish way for me to heal (laughs) and uh, it's it's called airplane because I think when you're working through trauma in in therapy you realize that it's not the responsibility of other people in your life to have to listen to you talk about that stuff all the time it's sort of on you to to work through it yourself yeah. and it you know in order to, to stop playing the victim all the time because my, my ultimate goal is to to be a likable person I guess to yeah. th- that doesn't kind of bombard people with that but in in music when you're you know working on your own stuff you can do whatever you want so i, I call it airplane because i i was thinking about the the guy in the movie airplane who's uh always trot like <laughs> telling people about his trauma until they kill themselves
2: R- right right i see
1: which just made me laugh kind of sick twisted humor is kind of a but then manages to land the plane safely at the end anyway just a funny joke to myself um but then also sort of the suffocating like awful feeling of uh being you know sexually assaulted that that was the other side of it oh my so my god i didn't realize um, this
2: i'm very sorry to hear that robin
1: oh yeah i'm sorry Vish. no no don't uh, don't, don't well don't apologize
2: I, and i don't know what else to say but that and i appreciate that i mean from what you're saying for what it's worth i think it's good that you've uh figured out a way to uh deal with it and uh and put that forth in your music I, that's very brave of you and again i'm Oh, I thanks. may be saying a bunch of stuff that's cliche, but I don't know what else to say. I think it's true.
1: No, it's, well, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. It. It. Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with the whole Me Too movement, but I think that another issue I had was this guy was still showing up at my concerts, like up until three or four years ago. And sort of, uh, I think something that the Me Too movement did do was made it a bit easier to tell, you know, a door person, don't let this guy in, without kind of having to. Uh, encounter backlash, like right. why are you saying this? You know, crazy woman. So, um, yeah. I think the it has helped in that sense. So, um, but yeah, th- thank you for saying.
2: Well, that. you're welcome, and I appreciate you speaking on it uh, as candidly as you always do. Uh, when you took, when you cover subject matter, I do appreciate your candor, and I appreciate you making this record. Um, as we're speaking, I don't know if it's possible to really have plans that you can actually uh, execute. But do Mm -hmm. you have plans uh, to either tour or release new music in 2022? Is there anything coming up that you want to talk about?
1: So I am going actually on tour in Fucked Up next month on keyboards, which I'm really excited about for their uh, David Comes to Life tour.
2: Oh, congratulations. Yeah, I just had Mike and Josh from Fucked Up on the show talking about uh, David Comes to Life uh, extensively. So uh, I as you I think you know we're friendly and I'm a fan of theirs. Uh, oh,
1: they're the the coolest.
2: yeah, well, that's great. they asked you to they, so you're in the band. what are you gonna do you're gonna play some sort of keyboards or something?
1: on on synthesizers yeah, so I you know we're usually the holiday season's kind of depressing. It's been very exciting to to go through these songs and arrange guitar parts for keyboards and so on. And I think rehearsals are starting next week. Oh, or the end th- of next week. Yeah.
2: So that's amazing. If I may, and I don't mean to be a downer, do you think? Mm-hmm. Do you think those shows will actually happen?
1: I don't know, <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> I, I, uh, I passed the Zappa plays Zappa audition just before the pandemic, and and then the pandemic happened. So I'm I'm prepared for the. What
2: What was that again? I know there's something to do with Dweezil Zappa, but for the folks, can you tell the folks listening at home what Zappa plays Zappa was all about?
1: Uh so it's. Frank Zappa's son, who plays his his father's music uh, live on tour. I think it's not called Zappa plays Zappa anymore. It's called the Dweezil Zappa Experience. But it it's a big kind of rite of passage as a musician. Steve Vai famously, you know, had uh, and George Duke have had these crazy audition stories where uh, Frank was real crazy. So it uh, <laughs> made them play like Hawaiian style seven eight uh, on the fly. And, uh, <laughs> is Dweezel. <is, laughs> so I had heard about. Is, is, sorry, go ahead. I was just
2: going to say, is Dweezel similarly eccentric?
1: Uh, he is known to go on YouTube covers that fans of Zappa will, uh, will post and, and write, you know, you made this mistake in the comments. Oh
2: my God. Okay. But you, you encountered Dweezel and passed the audition. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was in L.A. for a trade show with a microtonal synthesizer that I was like a brand rep for and uh, <laughs> heard about this this audition. And um, this was actually, you know, two days after the first long winter that where we had our interview. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I feel like we talked about uh, it. We did
2: We talked about the, the fact that you were going to do that. That's right. I remember that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I didn't go to the trade show. I just learned, I transcribed five Zappa songs in three or four days and then sent him videos. And we went for coffee and it was like, it was going to be a Deep Purple tour, opening for Deep Purple that summer oh. across Europe, which would have been like insane. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so, it, at any rate, it, I'm prepared for sort of the ego hit of what you know what happens if it right. <laughs> if, if this tour doesn't go forward. It's just such an honor that they thought of me at all. You're
2: saying sorry, so the, the Zappa play Zappa or whatever it is called. now, that didn't happen in the end, is what you're saying?
1: No, because of the pandemic. Right. It, that was you know three weeks. At, before the lockdown. So does that, but does that so we,
2: suggest that if things were to resume, like, have you been in touch with them since then? Would you, if they were to do, if they were to plan to do it again, would you be involved? Do you think?
1: Well, the reason they needed a player was because King Crimson was reuniting that summer
2: oh. and they were
1: sniping some, some of his players for their band. So I, I doubt it. Oh, okay. Plus like I, I way over posted about it. Cause I think during the pandemic, I just went, you know, you know what, I'm just going to tell everybody on my social media that I did this. Well, you know, you're proud you know. of yourself too, right? Yeah, totally. But there's this weird, like, is it a bad look if I, you know, mm. if I say, you know, you've always got to kind of watch out for that stuff, um, sure. which I've learned the hard way, unfortunately, a bunch of times on Twitter. But uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. He He's reached out, you know, to say, he said, Happy New Year to me last year. But it's, it's you know,
2: right. Okay, well, he, clearly he felt a connection and then uh, perhaps there'll be a collaboration uh, later down the line. You are a little unfiltered on Twitter. I I, mm-hmm. I I said that you I appreciate your candor, but you do sometimes say things that I can see. Are you deliberately trying to put people off? Are you, are you deli- del- deliberately trying to provoke people into a reaction? Because sometimes you're very funny, but sometimes you say things I'm like, ooh, I don't know about that one. You know what I mean?
1: Like, Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think... Sometimes I don't even know what I'm One time I posted as a joke like completely the cake or the devo of our time. Right. And it and it went you know not viral but some of the kind of cool New York art scene people were were talking about it and oh. just tearing into me as though I was being completely earnest and I'm in I'm in a group chat on Twitter with a bunch of Toronto people where the rule is kind of, I don't know, it's not like a gang or whatever, but the there's like an unspoken rule that if that happens, see how long you can take it without telling people it was a joke.
2: Yeah, there's a few people who do this uh, well, where they'll tweet something yeah. deliberately dumb or deliberately tone deaf or provocative in a way just to see what happens. Uh, yeah. So you're saying you're part of that school of thought sometimes. So the, some of the things you've said, you're saying just to be not a troll. Is that trolling? I can't tell.
1: I uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I think
2: That's what the That's uh, what the alt right does, right? Like that's what the alt right trolls have done. Uh they've kind of wep they've taken the kind of part of comedy that was fun where you just say and do something so st- sort of seemingly obviously false or extreme mm-hmm. and but people know your tone of voice so they recognize that maybe you're goofing around but there's but yeah, now that's sort of now everyone takes everything that everyone says seriously first um yep so you can have fun with those people but also you like you say you might get people who are like well fuck robin uh, that's the, the the thing she said was so awful that i think i I'm, I'm done you know like you, you might get that too right
1: yeah, yeah like it i mean the the Kanye West i i posted a uh, a side by side photos of a review Kanye West got on the Donda album next to the one review i've ever received at this point uh, in the guardian yeah which had four stars and his had two stars i said you know try harder next time Kanye um and it it went viral people saying as a joke that i was racist but you know cut to 10 days later i'm on the phone with uh, bashir mohammed in in edmonton Mm -hmm. um who i believe is the head of black lives matters there who was you know legitimately hurt by by what i'd said and you know for
2: right there you go so you so does that give you pause the next time you write something where you know you're you're kind of trying to pick at people does that give you pause uh before you do it or what what happened
1: I think it took a few months. Like I was about to go on tour at that point. That's another factor. Is you can never know. You have to ask yourself what were my motivations in doing this. You know, was I coming from a stressed out point yeah. of view when when this all happened and so on. You know, look after yourself. But I think Bashir brought that up on the phone to the the kind of alt right movement and uh, and trolling and and so. Oh, forth. he did. That's
2: weird. I just made that. I mean, I didn't make it up. That's interesting. Okay, so he. That's what. That's what they we're seeing as well. Like that line is blurry these days, I have to say.
1: Yeah, you know, it, I follow people who, you know, posted on those same message boards where the the alt-right formed and so on, but I I don't think they would consider themselves alt-right. But I, um, in terms of sort of coping with mental illness, I've found a lot more connection in sort of being basement dweller uh loners with those people in terms of like using humor as a as a way to cope but i I think that when you have a sort of brand to worry about it's funny i posted i didn't know he was going to be on your podcast but i posted a a quote tweet of steve albini you know um saying something about the vaccine and so on Mm -hmm. um a few weeks ago that i don't think was Super provocative. I'm, I'm just such a huge fan. I was like, seeing if he would engage with me mostly. Yeah. And he had a thread about a month ago that was how he was res- like feels bad about creating edge lord culture, something like that. Yeah, yeah. We talked uh, about
2: that. So Steve's been on the show once a year since I've started this show, and uh, we've had a long history of talking to each other since uh, the mid 2000s. And uh, and I did ask him about that on the most recent episodes. This, by the way, was me. Inter- I listened to it. It's just an interjection to plug. My own show. Sorry, but yes. No, it was
1: great. I. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Go go ahead. But it's 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 weird. I was like, I kind of had a. After I did that, I had a bit of a change of heart in terms of some of the more extreme-minded people that I was interacting with. That it's almost like when someone gets canceled in the community. To to use that as an example, like you. Yeah you have to take things by on a case-by-case scenario like it uh, we know about cancel culture Mm -hmm. it's not really real um if somebody gets canceled right but it it does affect how people you know interact with their friends you know you don't see comedians talking about louis ck online anymore whether or not they're still privately consuming the content yeah and i realized you know some of the it is maybe not the best look to engage with people who are actively, you know, using racial slurs, whether or not they're doing that as a, you know, compulsive sort of in intrusive Tourette's type thing. Someone who visits your page for the first time doesn't know that necessarily. So,
2: Well, there were time-wise you could uh, also say that uh, if someone did something unusual, you could say with little reservation, they're being crazy. Uh, yeah, totally. And, and you can't... So the Kanye thing is... As you know, I think Robin, we would have done some Kanye material in our wedding band, right? Did we? Oh yeah, I'm a huge fan. Right, <laughs> and and I know you probably are. But the thing is, he's done so much problematic, terribly terrible stuff, damaging stuff to his community and uh, beyond. In the certainly in the Trump era, dodgy before that, sure, uh, some of the raps I cringe at now that I kind of let go by, you know. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. a context thing. All this to say, he is suffering from trauma mm-hmm. and mental health issues, and I think so. There is a school of thought, like when I talk to Backwash about Kanye West, or I talk to Deja S B about Kanye West. They're all like, "I'm, I'm sorry, I'm there for him." Like I don't want to paraphrase yeah. what they said. Like, I think they recognize what he's doing is wrong in a lot of ways, but he yeah. you, you know, he's also made. The greatest music of the century, uh, certainly in his realm, and has influenced mm-hmm. all sorts of things on a Beatles level, like socio culturally. Yeah, I like, mean,
1: you could say the same thing about John Lennon. Yes, exactly,
2: exactly, right. And and I I so and yeah, Lennon had the same stuff. Like that's the only real excuse for the really really horrible stuff we've heard about his first marriage is that if there's any excuse possible, I mean, is that like his life was driven by pain like all of what he did was driven by pain and I think he really I will say as an aside I my thing is I thought he tried to atone for that as much as he possibly could uh, throughout the 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 70s yeah and and the 60s yeah. So that, that, there's, I think we have to forgive people here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's unforgivable, of course. And I'm sure coming from where you come from and experiencing what you've experienced, you can recognize that some people are never going to be forgiven. Yeah. Um, but And should not be. But there's other. So Kanye spent 15, 16, 17 years making some of the best music possible, saying some weird shit, but also making saying some great shit. I still think that. God damn, the balls on that guy for going on that telethon and saying George Bush doesn't care about black people. Yeah, he's uh, and great. Writing raps, writing raps about how he it's conspiratorial, but to suggest that the government... He'll say, like, I know the government administers AIDS. Like, that's pretty out there. That's like... On the one hand, that's pretty out there, but what he's really saying is, I know they're letting it decimate my community. Yeah, it's being uh, produced on purpose. Upon, yeah, systemic. Same violence. way as crack and everything else. Like, there's a reason to think those things because there's some fact in it. Anyway. It, it was weird to...
1: What I was arguing with some people about during this whole thing was that I was... What I was doing was punching down on... Uh, Donda West, because of the disproportional uh, rate at which women of color are subjected to medical malpractice, which is right, an interesting like which I completely agree with the the second part. It was interesting to be accused of punching down, and it's also like a, a slippery slope that I don't want to get involved in. Wow, Online, so, I people, think
2: so people were as much, they were upset as much about what you did because the album happened to be called Donda? Y-
1: yes, because, you know, I didn't, you never know something's going to blow up. Yeah. Early on someone said, like, do you think you're better than Kanye? And I replied, um, ball don't lie. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, without thinking, <laughs> but, you know, someone who doesn't know me, it was construed as using... Aave, oh, oh um, I see. Yeah, which, yeah, which, it's like a, I see examples where I am like, "That is that's white tears, that's white female tears," and I agree with with you. It 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 was very frustrating to be on the receiving end of it, and to you can't really go, "I am not like that," because it, you know, it just makes people make more fun of you. I think for the most part. It, it was fine i i it was hard to you know i think at one point my the most crazy i went was i replied to somebody with wearing like a black lives matter shirt like i consider myself like a radical anti-racist and it it was so frustrating to encounter a bunch of strangers who who you know i don't like i also don't like talking about it on social media you so. you,
2: you you made a you tried to make a joke ostensibly what this boils down to is you tried to make a joke and it wasn't seen as such. And that's a yeah. lot of where comedy is at these days. And um, and it's also the realm of a lot of, no offense to you, and this is not meant to be disparaging. No. There's a lot of amateur comedians uh, out in the world now, and some of them are funnier than the professionals. And some of them are just trying things. And that's a lot of what comedy is, just trying something, right? Mm-hmm. And if it lands badly, it lands badly. But usually in the in the old days, they would land badly in a room full of, if you're lucky, a couple hundred people at the most, and then you fix it. And yeah. now everyone's trying out their open open mic stuff on Twitter or wherever. and sometimes it does well and sometimes it doesn't. and and sometimes there's nuance that's missed mm-hmm. uh, maybe purposefully, you know, That's a lot of like just trying to weaponize someone's words. Uh, that's the new pastime uh you said this well it could mean this and then yeah. the person says well no that's clearly not what I meant I meant this It doesn't matter I interpreted it to mean this so you're I mostly don't do anything on these things for these reasons because I anytime I've I j I, I remember once at CBC there someone was like hey that tweet probably a tweet about the urinal or something. I have some, some, some bad, <laughs> dumb tweet about a urinal that I did that I thought was kind of funny, but it was dumb. Like, I knew it was dumb, but you also assume that's not your legacy, right? So you tweet mm-hmm. that, and you assume it's a tweet that will be fleeting. And then what it becomes for some people is your legacy. Oh, Robin Hatch. I know that name. That's the person who did that tweet about Kanye and Donda West yeah so that you you, you there's these micro legacies that emerge from micro-blogging that you have to be careful about i think oddly yeah, odd, and- that's that's all it is like I appreciate your brashness like just so the rec- let let the record show you've been on some iteration of this show twice, both in the long night capacity. I take the long night talk show and I turn it into a podcast episode but you i you are i do a thing for exclaim where I, I round up tweets that I think are funny. That's like a weekly assignment I have. Uh, and I included one of yours. And the reason we're having this conversation, in a sense, <laughs> is because you quote tweeted that, tw- that their tw- whatever, their post about the funny tweets thing, and you used it as an opportunity to quasi taunt me into having you on the show. <laughs> and I was like, what, Robin, what is going on? Like, Were you offended that you weren't on the show? Is that what happened?
1: I I think I was just being kind of like joking or something like uh-huh.
2: that. You were joking. Oh,
1: but also you had just no, you had just uh, had Steve Albini on, and I felt kind of weirdly guilty about uh, you know it. it uh, it's so arrogant of me to assume you know everyone's visiting my page and or delusional like I. Oh, you know, oh. I'll, I also don't think that, but I was like, that was right around the time I was thinking, was he onto something when he said, you know, I need to scale back being an edge lord. Um, so then. Oh. I had seen that and went like, oh, I'm so embarrassed that I, you know, said that I need to be thinking more professionally now that I'm going to be playing keyboards and fucked up or something. So then I, uh, but then I just also said that because I thought you might laugh at it. Right, no, I did. Um,
2: and I reached out and I said, sure, let's do it. Like I, I wasn't, I'm so busy. I, I felt, I saw Joseph Shabison listed as a, someone on your uh, record there as a credit. And Joe, Joe's reached out to be on the show because he put out at least two great records this past year. And he's been on the show before. And I said, sure. But what I think I even said, I called him yesterday because I felt so bad that I wasn't able to make it happen. And what I told him, I think even at the time when he initially asked was, just so you know, for whatever reason, I have three months worth of episodes recorded. Like this pandemic has been so weird for me and my practice. Everyone's kind of around, I guess, that I'm, mm-hmm. wor- I'm working ahead to such a, a crazed extent That I I have to miss people and records that I want to talk about because I'm just like, when am I going to put that out? I already, I also am with advertisers or whatever. Like, I have to be like, here's my plan for next month. And I don't often vary it. I'm like, I really should be doing one a week. Uh, I shouldn't be doing two a week because it's too much and I can't keep up with it. And I have a day job and I have a family. Like, I can't do it. So, anyway, that's just so we're clear. I like you i'm a fan of yours and i'm a fan of Joe's and I, I i just i have to that's all it is i'm i'm a little rammed and slammed and i i'm just doing my that's best great yeah it is good but i don't want anyone to feel like why didn't vish have me on the i also like it's well, a no ni-
1: you have celebrities You have like actual famous people on your <laughs> podcast like I, I honestly didn't expect you to reach out to me so well you um, have I tweet- I you it.
2: have tweeted some things that have given me some pause and i will say that too because i'm like oh like man. which ones you really want to get into this? I don't know if yeah. I want to get into it. Well... Yeah, it's like it's the, like
1: Mark Maron. Let's okay, uh, well, quickly,
2: because we're already... What are we at here? We're almost at two hours. Okay, I, I'm going to do this. I'll, I'll say it, and you tell me if it was a joke or not, but okay. I was a little offended as a fan of Bob Dylan's when you went after Bob Dylan. Oh, okay. You went after Bob Dylan when those... And I don't... As we're speaking, I don't know if these accusations are valid, but someone came out to say that in, like, 1965 or 66... They were uh, abused by Bob Dylan, and and it um, it 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 was roundly like what the hell? That was the initial reaction, like holy shit, because he's someone who's been pretty clean from as far as we know. I mean, guy from the '60s, '70s, who knows? But he's been pretty mm-hmm. much a family guy and all that sort of stuff. But this accusation came out, and then shortly after the accusation came out, accusation came out there were a few people who were like, well, the timeline doesn't make sense. He wasn't in the country, mm-hmm. let alone in New York City when this person is claimed. Like, he wasn't. It's all on the record. He made a film. There's film. There's a doc- a famous documentary about him being out of the country at this time. So that gave me a little bit of relief because I don't know if you know this, but I adore his music, and I got the sense that from your tweet that A, you thought the accusations were probably true, and B that you didn't like his music. So I was like, Ar- I'm just right. being honest with you here. Okay, go ahead.
1: I I like Bob Dylan. I had just broken up with someone who's a massive Dylan fan and uh, did that to bother him.
2: <laughs> were we Sorry, were we dating? Am I <laughs> unaware of our relationship because it seemed I took it personally and I don't know what it was. No, so I you, think a lot so of
1: people did, but I uh I did that, you know, at that point I was I was i think just angry at my house and i did okay, that because uh, i was pissed off but
2: but, but no one would know, know that. this you went at him you called him like a pedophile i know and you, <laughs> and you said his music was garbage or something like it was way too and i was like I know. okay
1: uh yeah I was no like, it was bad i was like unhinged at that point i, I like okay, bob dylan though i think he, i mean he's come on he's like the best <laughs>
2: but he's not do you agree, would you agree that by the sounds of things he probably isn't sorry that's not even get um, into the allegations because i, mean, that, I think that'll that come to light
1: there's a lot we don't know about sure. the best yes. classic rock musicians and i, uh, I absolutely but i yeah. uh you know i'm a huge steely dan fan and donald fagan someone who's publicly you know punched women it uh yeah you know it's there's times where i will separate the art from the artist it uh, that's which so sucks. that's interesting, yeah.
2: Yeah, that is interesting. I can, I can, uh, you know, I talk, you can, if you ever do listen to the albini interview I just did again, uh, been a fan forever. Uh, saw shellac for the first time in 1998, and still, when I play a guitar or the drums, my default is to kind of emulate something that his band has done. Uh, however, something came to light from a mutual friend of ours who, like, do you know? He's famously been in one bad a, a band with a terrible awful awful name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but a friend of mine sent me a link to the another one-off project he was associated with, which he explained on the episode. I didn't say the name, but it's worse. It's a worse name on the face of it. However, after his context for what it was and his role in it, I was left feeling okay about it, not great, but still okay about it, and he acknowledged that it was wrongheaded on several levels, but also explained where it may have came from. So all this to say, I've taken a moment out of our conversation here to ask you about a specific tweet that's on the, now we're on the record with it, and so you will acknowledge that sometimes you go on Twitter in a state where you feel like you're just going to provoke people or exercise something that's bothering you, and it might not even be about the subject matter at hand. Mm-hmm. Like the Kanye thing was also you reckoning with your own uh, agency as an artist who gets the coverage you get, and you were comparing yeah. yourself to arguably the most famous person on the planet right now, which is as a, yeah as
1: a you know as a joke.
2: <laughs> to me, that's obviously a joke, but other people don't take it that way. And I will tell you, as someone who likes comedy and jokes, and feeling just like so, my breath was taken away by the Dylan stuff, and I'm okay with it now because I once the sort of public investigation occurred i'm like right he wasn't even like what the hell like this doesn't even make any sense so maybe it's what could this be but maybe the more information will come to light and i'll eat my words but it would obviously be crushing to me to learn that he was he did something that terrible um mm-hmm. because but at the same time as you most of the people i admire seem to have done at least one questionable thing and and so then it puts you on your heels a bit like what am i I've devoted mm-hmm. my life to loving this person and their work from afar, uh, or I go see them every time they're around. What did I do? Like, what was I supporting? Anyway, thank you for explaining it, this.
1: I thought it was in a you know I'm an arrogant. Or my my ego is ultimately, I, yes. Privately, I'm quite confident about myself as a creative. I thought it was a bit of a Dylan move um, for me to. Uh, For people to not really know what I was talking about. It was
2: pretty harsh. I got to say, if I remember correctly, it was pretty harsh, but I appreciate that you weren't even mad at him, or you don't necessarily believe what you wrote completely. I mean, more information has to come out. Uh, No.
1: Okay. I just, I really said it to get a rise out of one person.
2: Well, I hope it worked. Did you hear back from that person? Were they upset?
1: No. I mean, that's, of course not.
2: Okay. All right. Robin, uh, so you've got some fucked up plans, and then otherwise, uh, where can people go to learn more about you and your work?
1: Uh, my Bandcamp, uh, robinhatch.bandcamp.com. Um, you know, Google Robin Hatch, find yeah. some articles about me.
2: Yeah. Okay, that sounds good. And um, uh, oh, I got
1: some vinyls coming out on uh, January fifteenth. Is when the, when they're in. So you
2: um, have, you have Tonto of the vinyls Tonto vinyl. Tonto vinyl. Okay, yeah. good, good. You are you saying that vinyls ironically, or is that how you talk?
1: It's supposed to be vinyls.
2: No, it's supposed to be vinyl.
1: No, it is vinyls.
2: No, it's not. That's a that's a Josiah Hughes move. You're you're making fun.
1: I is he making that it's up?
2: V- yeah, it's not. No, vinyls. it is vinyls. No, it's not. It's a joke. That's your that's, kid. No, that's what no, people it's who not. don't know how to say vinyl say it, and that's what he. That's Josiah. Our friend Josiah Hughes. Loves making fun of people who say vinyls. So anyway, it's fine. Are you well, joking me? No, I'm, I'm telling that's you the so truth. That's so
1: embarrassing.
2: I thought you were, anytime I've seen you use it, I assume you were following his school of thought. Really? love. Okay, okay, cool. We've okay, learned cool. a lot it. Yeah, that's
1: definitely, about the, that's what I was doing.
2: Yeah, yeah we'll say well, that's what you're doing. So look out for the um, oh my Tonto vinyls to uh, <laughs> hit the shelves or the online record stores. Uh, if we can give people a taste of Tonto... By the way, Tonto, how is that even acceptable in this day and age? You know, I have a landing. uh, Yeah, I know you've taken care of it, but I can't believe we're talking about a thing called Tonto, which, for those who don't remember, was a character in the Lone Ranger series that was indigenous uh, or Native American. Anyway, let's not get into that. That's just called Fu Manchu or something. It's an acronym. It's an acronym. It's not really named after Mm -hmm. Tonto what's a song from Tonto and that's something
1: I said to the Kanye guy was like if you're going to call me up for anything like why don't you look at my pin tweet Um.
2: (laughs) you double down that's fucking funny (laughs) Uh. (laughs) okay if we can play a song from Tonto uh, there Robin what can we play can you pick one and tell Um, us why you chose it
1: I guess uh, you can play my lucid mind I like that that one a lot I, I I'm embarrassed. I think it kind of, unfortunately, sounds like the Simpsons theme a bit. But I love Danny Elfman, so um, I think it's my most interesting uh, <laughs> composition.
2: Okay, I like the Simpsons as well. Again, you can pick yeah. up Tonto on vinyl uh, uh, on Robin's Bandcamp. This is uh, my Lucid Mind, uh, Robin. Uh, I, I love you very much. Thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, I appreciate you reaching out and prodding me to to make it happen on Twitter, which is your way of getting it people under people's skin. It worked. <laughs> But I, I do care uh, a lot about you, and I'm glad you're doing stuff. And uh, thank you for this, and, and best luck uh, in the future.
1: Thanks for having me, Vish, and, and likewise. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been great to catch up.
2: Thanks once again to Robin Hatch for appearing on this, the 659th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode you're looking for or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control on Facebook if you want to and also follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram at vishkana. Also visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast. We've had some nice donations lately, so thank you very much to those of you around the world contributing to our Patreon. A reminder that $6 or more a month grants you access to some exclusive content, uh, including uh, bonus material from current episodes, like like the one with Robin. If you enjoyed this chat with Robin, we sat down and did a little bit of overtime and a little I've been asking people about their current obsessions and we just see where that goes so Robin had a response to that and if it's not up already on the Patreon it will be up in the next day or so so uh, check that out and uh, again for those who uh, donate $6 or more you have access to all sorts of exclusive content not just uh, you know from this show or current episodes but I dig into my audio archives, air it Heck, maybe I'll find that old Sheezer interview. I don't know that I did with Robin and that band. I I don't know. I think I have that. Anyway, my point is this. If you're interested in any of this... Oh, and also if you're interested in receiving a Creative Control t-shirt, just message me on Patreon and I will get you one while supplies last. Again, the uh, address you need to know there is patreon.com slash creative control. I want to thank... uh, Who do I want to thank here? Oh, yes, the uh, absolutely great Alberta... Based record retailer Blackbird Music, which you can learn more about at their website, blackbird.ca. And also, I want to thank Pizza Trocadero, the Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, uh, each located respectively in Guelph, Ontario, and also Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. You can learn more about all these places via the podcast description. There should be links there. Also want to thank my friend Jim Guthrie, who was mentioned on this episode. He lends me music for this show, and you can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you for listening to this super long—I don't mean it in a negative way, but this was an unusually long episode with Robin. I I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider subscribing to Creative Control on the podcast thing that you use. Subscribe or follow the show, and maybe tell your friends about it and, and help spread the word about the show. That would be helpful. And uh, that's it. I want to go. I have to go. I have to go shovel. There's lots of snow. And my wife went out there first. So I got to go. I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now.